0: Welcome to the Table podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement here at Dallas Seminary in the Hendricks Center. And today our topic is human trafficking. It's not a pleasant topic, it's a it's a disturbing topic in a lot of ways. But we have two wonderful guests who have a lot of experience in working in this area. Uh, I have with me uh, Mike Bartel, who is director of Free International, an organization that works with human trafficking headquartered in Las Vegas and he's live with us uh, over Skype. Uh, And then uh, Darlene Line, who's on the board of Free International and has worked in law enforcement for a long time and has worked uh, these kinds of situations for a long time, uh, is with us. Uh, Darlene, are you in New York City?
2: I'm in New Jersey,
1: but yes, you're in New Jersey. Okay, great. (laughs) Close enough. Close enough, right? So you can tell by her southern accent that we're glad to have her. Uh, uh, Darlene uh, works with Chosen People Ministries in New York City, and uh, actually was in a class that I taught years ago, in which I found out that she uh, has been in law enforcement and. is one tough lady, so you want to smile at Darlene whenever you see her. Uh, so we're really glad to have both of you on with us uh, to 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 discuss a really serious topic that oftentimes is uh, is awkward for people to think about. And so, uh, so we really do appreciate you being with us today.
0: Thanks, Dr. Bach.
1: Well, let me get us started. Let me just run off some statistics that's on the Free International uh, website uh, that kind of set the tone for for what we're talking about. Trafficking, let's define it first, is the exploitation of a person through the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of either forced labor, labor or commercial sex. Most people think that human trafficking is just about sex issues, but there also is a forced labor component to this that's important. Um, And uh, some of the facts that you all have on your website are there are more slaves in the world today than at any other point in history, including uh, transatlantic slave trade. You would have thought that would have been gone in the past, but that's not the case. Commercial sex trafficking is the third largest criminal enterprise in the world. Trafficking occurs both internationally and domestically within the United States, and it's estimated that between... Uh, 100,000 to 300,000 children are exploited for commercial sex every year just in the United States alone, and the average age of entering into prostitution in the United States is between the ages of 12 and 14. Those are just some of the facts that you all cite. So this obviously is a... Uh, difficult and complex issue. Mike, why don't you tell us how you got involved with uh, with um, a ministry related to human trafficking?
0: Well, um, our, uh, my wife and I's involvement with human trafficking goes back to the mid-90s actually. Uh, we were working as campus pastors at Purdue University. And uh, my wife was uh, running the International Center there as well as uh, head of their International Friendship Program. And it was during orientation week in January of 1995 that uh, I was talking to some of the international students from Africa. And uh, he was explaining to me uh, what he was doing there and his desire to go back to his home country to be able to help uh, with some of the social ills of his country. And one of which was um, human trafficking. He called it slavery at the time because he had believed many of uh, his nieces, as young as seven, eight years old, had been sold into the brothels. And uh, some of his cousins uh, had been sold into the labor camps. And so for for my wife and I, that was, you know, like one of those moments you remember, like when, you know, um, 9-11 happened or whatever. You remember everything about that moment in that room. And, you know, I'm a pastor's kid, third generation. My grandmother was a church planter during the Great Depression. You know, we we had a a rich heritage in ministry, but this is something I I had never heard of before. And it was it was that that kind of drove us to get involved uh, to the point where we got involved with a a ministry overseas called Project Rescue, and we were partnering with groups like International Justice Mission. And, um, you know, in the mix of all that, just began to hear more and more what was going on in our own country. So, my wife and I returned and and started a missions organization called Free International, which stands for Find, Rescue, Embrace, and Empower, uh, in partnership with uh, local church communities across the country to address it right on our doorstep.
1: So, your background is you were a campus minister, basically, uh, and and then transitioned into this.
0: Yeah, we. Uh, you know, I was a campus minister when we first uh, were exposed to this issue. We had. We had moved to New York City and pastored for a while, um, working with people throughout New York City that were addressing this, including with the UN, and uh, it was just just a progressive movement to where we, we begin to think, you know, how can we get involved directly with this? Boots on the ground, sleeves rolled up to really make an impact with those who are being exploited. And so, but we were first exposed to it as campus pastors at Purdue University and interacting with our international students.
1: Now, Darlene, uh, your background is uh, – is uh, well, military background. You were a civil servant. Uh, you were a senior special agent for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. All that tells me I shouldn't mess with you at all, just smile and be quite friendly. Uh, but tell us about your – how you got involved with, with this. Uh, how how did you come to, to be aware of what's going on with human trafficking?
2: I was um – assigned in the New York office is actually at JFK Airport, and I was at at Internal Affairs Division. And uh, because this was just growing in law enforcement circles uh, of how, how to combat this, we would see the projected numbers of the estimations of how many people are trafficked in. Through you know through into the United States, so of course when you're at one of the ports that that raises an antenna, what what are we missing? So um, I was asked to join a multi-agency, including NGO, task force, um, and it was a human trafficking task force. And this would this was I think somewhere around 2009 or 2008. Uh, and it was comprised of FBI, Homeland Security, uh, Department of Social Services, uh, the Labor uh, uh, Division, NGOs. Um, it was just a plethora of agencies coming together. How can we identify this? Because it's a hidden crime. It's it's very much prevalent however it's it's very hidden and it it's hard to identify because oftentimes if if you were looking for people coming into the ports the the uh the the trafficked person may not have that fear did not come uh you know in shackles or anything they are thinking they're coming under the uh auspices of a friend a job opportunity an educational opportunity i mean that's just one of the ways so it's very often missed um, The interesting thing, though, with any of the government agencies is we realize how important it is that you have to bring in the community. And Homeland Security has what they call, uh, in 2010, they implemented the Blue Campaign. And it's a way of, uh, they can't do it alone. Law enforcement, without the public awareness, is unable to even make a dent. They do as much as they can. But it's it's the training and uh, the collaboration of all people. Eyes, you know, it's like let us have ears that hear and eyes that see. So what is. Uh A blessing to me is in their list, as you're looking at that, they give you posters, they'll do trainings, as well as the NGOs. However, they also identify the faith-based community in their list of uh, ways of getting trained. So this is very exciting for me to see that from a government aspect mentioning the faith-based community.
1: Okay, so basically what you're talking about is is that there's very little uh, chance of being able to deal with this unless there's a kind of an awareness of what's going on. So let's let's paint that scenario to start off with. Um, You said it's very hard to spot this as, uh, as taking place. So what are clues that people should keep their eyes open for and how do people get into the country? You've already alluded to this a little bit, Darlene. How do people get into the country who are being trafficked? And why don't they look like they're being trafficked?
2: Say I'm traveling with you, and I'm a 14 year old. Um, you're a friend of the family. My family trusts you. I, it's I'm, a, I'm in a country that doesn't afford me a lot of opportunity. Uh, you come and say, hey, I know that uh, I can take them, take her with me or him. And go and travel. And I'm not. And you're holding my documents. We come. There's no antenna that will go up on the other side because I'm traveling with a friend. I'm not showing any kind of signs of being held against my will. It's not till you got wills down and maybe you're taken to a place that you realize. Well, and this is just one aspect that your documents are now not going to be part of you. You you uh, are threatened. Your family is threatened. So there's when you're passing through the immigration or the or the customs area, there is nothing that would would point to you as being a person that is a potential victim because we're walking through like anyone else.
1: So so in other words it's almost like once you land here and you and you're taken to wherever it is you're taken then the process really in one sense starts in terms of trying to hide who you are, change your identity, etc.
2: It kicks into gear because yeah. then that's when you could be forced into this that and the other thing. Am I correct, Mike?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that we see with what's going on with the uh, political issues of of uh, what's going on at the border right now, you know, um, you you have two aspects of this. If we're dealing with international trafficking, which is what we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. those being brought into the country who are being smuggled in aren't necessarily traffic victims. I mean, that's a crime in our country. It's a crime against the border if you end up here, you know, um, without going through the proper process. But human trafficking really is what happens once they get here, which is what um, Darlene was referring to. And many times what happens is those who bring you into the country, whether it's a friend or, or whether it's, you know, the coyotes getting you across the border, uh, the transac- if the transaction ends with that person paying the coyote to get them into the country, that's not human trafficking. But if, if once you get here, you know, there's more stuff added on to that, hey, I I know you don't have the money, but here's how you're going to work it off for me, and you you end up in in kind of um a debt bondage where they force you to work off either through labor or for sex, uh, your passage into this country. That's another aspect of that. So uh, yeah, the 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 exploitation part of this, as far as it pertains to human trafficking in a legal sense, happens when either sex or labor is put on the table. Um, uh, through force, fraud, or coercion for you to perform those acts for the benefit of the other person, whether that's money or some sort of benefit they get uh, from using you in that way.
1: Okay, okay, Mike, we've talked about the international situation. What happens when it's domestic? How does that happen? Is that often runaways and that kind of thing? Or are there well, other ways in which it happens?
0: Yeah, there's 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 so many different ways it happens now, but the statistics you read uh, actually, where the 100,000 to 300,000 U.S. children a year actually is is gotten from the missing children statistics, right? So every day in the United States, 2,200 children are reported missing. Uh, that doesn't include the ones that the families never take time to report them. These are the ones that are actually reported. So every day in the U.S., 2,200 children are reported missing in this country. And within 48 hours, law enforcement will tell you one-third of them will have already been approached by a pimp, a trafficker, somebody who might exploit them, and that number goes up to two thirds within seventy-two hours. Hmm. So that's where you get um, that's where you get the statistics for U.S. children every year who are either being exploited through trafficking or um, or at high risk for being trafficked, one hundred thousand to three hundred thousand. Now, in saying that, in brief, at the same time, you know that's just dealing with underage kids. That doesn't deal with those who are over eighteen who are also being exploited. Those are purely uh, domestic minor numbers. Those who are underage. And if we're looking at this law, and we're not going to get into great detail with the law, but but by federal law, um, you read the you know what was on the website up front that mm-hmm. that it has to include force, fraud, or coercion uh, to be a human trafficking case in our country. If you're under 18 years old, you don't have to prove any of those things. If you're being commercially exploited for sex. So 100% of the time, if a 17, 16, 15, 14-year-old is being sold for sex by a pimp, by somebody along those lines, 100% of the time, they are a traffic victim. And you do not have to prove force, fraud, or coercion, just age.
1: Okay. uh, There's a little… Tag on your on your website uh, on one of the pages. It goes every thirty seconds, another person becomes a victim of human trafficking. I mean that that's almost mind blowing to think about how how consistently people are caught up into this. Um, so so I guess the question now is um, uh, when we think about this, um, you know, obviously you've got people who, who become trapped. Uh, they um, are told this is the only way they can earn the money or whatever to to get out of the situation that they're in, but they're never let go once they're trapped, right? I mean, they're stuck. Isn't that what happens, Mike?
0: Yeah, it, it really becomes part of the process because again, there's so many different ways these children in particular these girls are exploited and one of the ways is a boyfriending scenario and so in many ways it's almost like a, um, there's there's a there's an emotional tie between the person who's being exploited and the person who's exploiting them to the point where they won't even self identify as a victim and so oftentimes that that's why you never see them run uh, among many other reasons but uh, they they think they've kinda so to speak made their own bed and uh, they've kind of faded themselves to this situation. And many times, those who are being exploited were already being abused in the home to begin with, sexually abused. And so their self-identity becomes wrapped up, and this must be the only place where I find value. And because of that, and, and really that's how exploiters are looking for those type of people, low self-esteem um, that they can take advantage of, and, and that's why they never get out. Uh, you know, there are those pimps who would use force to keep somebody in, or, or you know, uh, different times during this uh, during this grooming process, use force to to let them know that pain is involved. Should they cross the the trafficker, but oftentimes the chains really are more tied to emotional bondage than they are any physical uh, threats.
1: Another phrase that I've seen is what's called the Stockholm syndrome. Can you explain what that is?
0: Yeah, Stockholm syndrome. You know, at 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 its basis is really just when. When uh, the person who's being exploited actually develops emotional attachment to the person who's who's abusing them, um, we've seen that happen. You might have seen the Elizabeth Smart case from a few years ago, where after a while, uh, the 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 person who was exploiting Elizabeth Smart didn't didn't have to do anything. She was a will willing participant, so to speak, in his travels and where he went. She followed him because she developed an emotional attachment to her captor. Um, you know, it's a psychological issue that needs to be addressed in a you know, professional context. But, but that's what happens with a lot of those, you know, not a, not a dissimilar situation to say a battered woman who's been in a marriage for 25 years and there's never been a day where she hasn't been abused, yet she continues to stay in that marriage and that relationship because of that emotional tie to, to the person who's doing that a- abuse.
3: to understand how Evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
1: Okay, Darlene, you've suggested that from a law enforcement standpoint, this is a difficult thing to, to kind of get your eyes around and, and, and for, for law enforcement people to catch that part of what is needed is people who are aware of what's going on around them and can sense when this might be going on. Are there clues that people can be given to, to perhaps be aware that this might be going on and it's something that's worth uh, alerting law enforcement about or reporting?
2: The usual clues. Um, when in doubt, uh, people don't always think. Well, it can't happen in my neighborhood. You know, you might be in some place that is very quiet and sedate, but uh, that's a fallacy because it can. It, it's it can it can be happening in in your very uh, community and it be under your nose and you might not even see it. Uh, now, sure, we know about places where uh, there could be like quote-unquote brothels, massage parlors, uh, nails, uh, nail places, etc. But again, the the big issue is is that sometimes these people do not identify themselves even as victims. They don't trust law enforcement. They've been uh, brainwashed into fearing uh, with their identity. They've been brainwashed into who to trust. So... um, Without the victim being identified, it's it's also very difficult. And even today, there's only 39 states that have laws of, of in our uh, USA that have the laws that because uh, it's constantly changing. For instance, you can have for, um, we do a say something assembly with Free International, and there's another. Um, Typecast of a person uh, that could be attending high school, and all of a sudden the grades drop, and then people are sort of snickering and saying, "Well, gee, you know, they're not—you know, their grades are no longer good." The teacher is saying, "Ah, I used to be a good student." Uh, how does she afford that nice designer bag? And then she, this girl, sort of slips into thing, and and that's why when we're promoting this particular assembly, it's to let the kids know, "Hey, say something." you know, this could be your sister, this could be your daughter, this could be your niece. Um, Now, this is a person who's going home and sleeping home in their households every night and is a victim of trafficking. Hmm. And we've seen that um, even just in this last Super Bowl with coming up uh, with this powerful assembly, and uh, Mike will get into it more, where uh, it's a way that The communities and the schools are allowing free to go in and have this say something assembly that now there's um, we're on a waiting list to get into different places because Governor Christie was behind it, the attorney general. Um, And these are just ways to educate people and kids. Hey, there's something wrong. Don't just make fun of this person. Don't just call them a name. Say something to someone Mm. Um, because. We need these eyes and ears,
1: interesting. we need
2: these eyes and ears
1: well let's talk about uh, what you all what you all do. you've uh, alluded to where the name free comes from find, rescue, embrace, and empower and I think the way I want to do this is to is on the one hand to go through some scenarios and to talk about certain settings where these kinds of things are certainly going on, as well as talk about the kind of of uh, uh, process that you go through. So let's let's work through the the find, rescue, embrace, empower first in kind of an overview, and then we'll take a look at some scenarios. Um, so, Mike, what uh, what what is the process that you go through when you find somebody?
0: Yeah, um, that. First of all, I want to—the context to which free uh, exists and and does its work is always in collaboration and in partnership. So when we do direct outreach, for instance, you know when when we when we talk about find find for us really take if we're taking the biblical approach, you know the Bible says that the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can destroy and devour. But the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So I I love you know where we're taking this. Podcast here. This this show is is the reality. Is okay. Um, this happens in every community, all across the board. What does it look like so that we might be able to identify and find those who are being exploited? Whether that's like Darlene was just talking about our school assemblies deals with the prevention side of this. So identifying the risk factors in a community so that we might be able to prevent those who are already vulnerable from from being exploited in the first place. Or on the other side. Um, where and how we do direct outreach. One of the ways we've started to train the faith community when we first came back from India and how to identify and engage was through the Super Bowl outreaches that we do. We do a great collaborative Super Bowl outreach with a couple other great faith-based organizations, highly competent people, where this will be, I think, the seventh Super Bowl coming up here to go within Phoenix area this year, be able to identify areas of the city that that um, are higher risk and work with law enforcement, both federal, local, and state law enforcement, um, to really engage and be able to identify those who are being exploited. Whether that be online, some of our identification happens online. That's where, you know, if, if everyone doesn't know the term red light district, you know, that really deals with uh, high areas of prostitution or demarcated districts for, you um, for prostitution, um, really online's become the key place for that. Um, one of the big ways we've worked in outreach and finding is, is in outreach to missing children. So we come into an area and find which children are missing from that area, mobilize the faith community, uh, the business community, and other areas of that city to be able to find those who are already missing. Um, they may or may not be trafficked, but we all know they're vulnerable. If you're 14 and on the streets, you're vulnerable. So it allows us this connection point to build a network uh, within whatever community we're in, whether we're in South Dakota for the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally or you know, up in North Dakota for the big oil boom or whether we're in a metropolitan area like New York City in the last Super Bowl in North Jersey. How do we mobilize a community to to... To explain what that is. And we are not vigilantes, so we don't go busting in in a bulletproof minivan and start tossing girls in the back, you know, from the strip club and drive off down the road. We work hand in hand with law enforcement because um, even though we are missionaries uh, and, and know a thing or two about this issue, we have not been tasked in our culture to, you know, to play law enforcement. But again, we got great people like Darlene who were in law enforcement and are part of the faith community. Building those relationships so that as we identify within our church surroundings uh, the vulnerable, we can partner with law enforcement to get them help. So that's the find aspect is is the different areas of that, both in prevention and in outreach. How do we identify the vulnerable to protect them from this happening? Or how do we identify the ones that are already being exploited, work with law enforcement to see them extracted Mm -hmm. from their situation?
1: Okay. Well, before I turn to the R and the Rescue, you've mentioned uh, connecting with faith-based communities. How do churches get involved in this, and what's what, what what can they do?
0: Well, initially, you know what. Again, we took the approach with Free International that that we recognize uh, as believers that God chose His church with the capital C to be His agency to reach this world, both small and great alike. And in these individual pockets of churches and church plants and, and faith communities across the country, really and across the world, is is we're already seeing this in front of us wherever we're at. It's just a matter of recognizing what's going on, right? So, so we've, we we come in and we train. This is what this looks like. And many times churches already have. Uh, many different outreaches going on whether that's outreach to the hispanic population in their community uh, you know teaching english as a second language direct outreach you know into let's say once or twice a month to to reach those who are homeless and on the streets to be able to recognize and identify places of contact within the community already that the church is doing outreach and be able to add this layer of education and add the the network that's needed to be able to get those help that are there. So the church has played a pivotal role wherever we've worked because they're the ones that are already active in the community. And and we're seeing government and law enforcement recognize that. We serve, uh, I serve on a a task force here with um, uh, the vice department, Metro. I serve with the mayor's office, um, Interfaith Council on Combating Human Trafficking, and they recognize that the faith community plays a pivotal role in eyes and ears on the ground of what's going on. So it's in developing those networks but allowing the church to play the lead role in the relationship building they already have going on within the the area of the cities they exist. So we're seeing them play an active role. They're setting up our school assembly programs within a community which allows us to also tie that church into a relationship with the education uh, com- uh, community of, of the cities that they're in. They're really the leaders within that culture to be able to put all the pieces on the table uh, that are needed to identify this. and. Um, you know it's a there's a lot of ways we could answer that, but in the end, we're just allowing the church to play a leadership role within the community they're a part of and resource them to do that.
1: So, if a church decided, hey, we haven't done anything like this, we have no idea how to do this kind of uh, ministry and engage in it, what would be your advice to them as to how to get started?
0: Well, first of all, it's just to get educated on that. I mean, there's a lot of groups that are educating on the issue. Free International has a large group of people and great board members who can come in and educate. On that issue, and really begin to, you know, I guess in a, in a consulting type way, find out what resources that church already have to really engage in what area, you know, they are most effective in within that community already. Sometimes that might be law enforcement, might be education, it might be aftercare. But but it's first of all being able to uh, know what this issue is, and then um, in a in a reflective way, identify what each church has, whether that's money, whether that's you know uh, human resources to be able to engage in that community so first thing is to educate yourself on the issue for sure
1: okay Darlene I'm going to ask you about the R about rescue um, how, what does that look like uh, in terms of how that gets done and what are the possibilities for how that takes place
2: well once once a tip and once someone is identified uh, from the law enforcement perspective they come into uh, now they're into the legal arena and years ago but uh, thank god that things have changed and uh... Years ago, it was hard to identify them a as a victim uh... they had the fear of law enforcement because that was just indoctrinated into into their mindset you're talking about very broken people in a very broken world uh... so now when they get into the system and they are rescued uh... The government now has what they have, a continuing presence. Uh, it allows for, as soon as the person is identified as a victim, that their status is uh, stabilized up to four years, um, because before there was all this thing, well, uh, we don't know, they're not communicating, looking at them as just maybe women that were willing to just do prostitution. but. It's more victim-centered, which is very important because that's crucial to to identify them and to get them that status and stability so that they can go through the process, uh, the litigation process. Because it's you know, these laws are new, and the problem is is getting it to the point of prosecutions. Um, it, every time you turn around, there's a there's a different. Thing that that's there. These laws have to prosecutors have to prosecute them. Um, So that being said, the fact that these people will be stabilized, that they can stay here, and then again, I'm always going to shift back to the the faith-based groups because yes, they can put them in social services, put them in a home, but when. They come into a faith-based group or a home where they're going to get the restoration, which we as believers in the Lord know true restoration and deliverance comes from him, that we can actually see the transformation happening into these lives. Um, And again, the government is very short. In this aspect, once they're rescued, it, the the big issue is where to place them mm-hmm. when they're in this process. Home shortage uh, and places. Uh, Catholic charities used to house a lot of places, but there is a, a tremendous shortage in the United States. Where we are going to put these women while they're in that judica- uh, the adjudication process? Because it just does just because they're rescued now now you got a bigger thing going you've got the legal aspects going you've got uh, all this litigation and then you have dealing with their uh, their issues their psychological issues their emotional issues their their financial issues um, and again this is where we see the faith community also um, and we've been fortunate enough, and Michael probably may take a minute to talk about uh, a home that we are about ready to launch for this purpose, because this will give the comfort for these rescued people to while they are in this process because it can be long and drawn out.
1: Now, before we talk about the home, let me go back and recover something. You know, one of the ways in which I suspect that that someone who's being trafficked is trapped is in the midst of, you know, supposedly paying off a debt or whatever it is that's going on, I suspect that there's a lot of drugs and stuff like that that goes on as a part of this that also traps them so that they feel like they can be cornered with the idea of, well, if you turn yourself in, you're gonna, you know, they're going to trap you on drug charges and this kind of stuff, and you're going to be put in jail, and you don't want to turn yourself in. Is that the kind of thing that happens that keeps someone trapped in, in, the, in this situation, Mike?
0: Yeah, that's definitely one of many things that that happens. One thing we noticed over the years is, you know, we've worked with this almost uh, 11, 12 years now full time, is, you know, the old narrative was um, girl turns to prostitution to pay for their drug habit. And so the drug dealers became opportunistic and be able to make money uh, both off drugs and off the prostitution piece, which still happens because of their addiction, which I'll, I'll, I'd like to point out right away. That by federal law, that's also uh, falls under something you can prosecute for uh, human trafficking. Is if somebody takes or exploits an addicted girl or boy or man or whatever uh, in their addiction exploits them, that becomes part of the human trafficking law as well. But more times than not, what they were finding is the actual the drugs uh, come after the exploitation. Uh, they turn to drugs to kind of um, self medicate. Because of what their lives have become, what they're forced to do, being raped multiple times a day like they are. And so, yeah, it just becomes a vicious cycle, and the drugs can definitely play a part of that. Um, oftentimes, girls are, are, and boys or men are asked to perform other crimes that, that then the, the exploiter uses to put them on the hook for even though they were put up to it by their pimp, by their trafficker. And so it it just becomes a vicious cycle. As Darlene said, you know, they don't trust law enforcement already. And if they got their own rap sheet or multiple arrests that have happened for other things in the past, it just keeps them more and more tied to their exploiter.
2: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for part two. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu
0: slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth,
2: love well.